I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Patients with a rare disease may face debilitating, degenerative, and even life-threatening conditions, often with little treatment options. Their willingness to accept risk in the use of a therapeutic that may provide them benefit may lead to a different calculus than what regulators might consider. A study published at the end of May in the Orphanet Journal of Rare Diseases seeks to shed light on how rare disease patients might weigh the potential benefits and risks of a therapy. We spoke to Thomas Morell, lead author of the study and a research fellow at Leuven University in Belgium, about his findings, what factors change a patient's willingness to assume risk, and how this work might advance the discussion about the need to better consider patients' perspectives in the regulatory process. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Well, you're most welcome. Thank you very much. We're going to talk about rare diseases and their treatments and, and rare disease patients' willingness to assume risk when considering therapeutic options. Let's begin with your recent study in the Orphanet Journal of Rare Diseases. You set up what's known as a discrete choice experiment. Can, can you explain what that is? Well, yes. And, and in a few words, um, discrete choice experiments are survey instruments um, supported by complex statistical models that provide the opportunity to explore how patients and their family members would evaluate and accept trade-offs, you know, typically between um, treatment benefits and risk. So, um, but I'd like to just add that um, while the survey as indeed a, a component of pre-choice experiments, it also includes other uh, dimensions, such as, you know, a number of self-reported assessments on disease severity and current care management. So it just want, I just wanted to, to, to bring a you know, broader dimension that, you know, uh, hard quantitative uh, insights. Well, what exactly did you set out to determine and how did you go about doing that? Well, you know, what I wish to achieve with the study was to generate a holistic understanding on what matters to rare disease patients and caregivers, how much that matters, what trade-offs they were willing to make, and also to what extent disease context, you know, be it disease severity, impairments, or, or, or care management, had an influence on benefit-risk preferences. And you know, the the the, the slogan of the uh, of this year, uh, Rare Disease Day, was you know, join us in making the voice of rare disease hers. Well, you know, it was really what I wish to contribute to. And why did you decide to focus specifically on rare disease patients? Well, you know, first, for personal reasons, because I, I feel close to the rare disease community, uh, but also because, you know, I feel that rare disease are unique. You know, they are, they are poorly understood, they are serious, limited conditions, often characterized by poor prognosis and limited treatment options. And, you know, well, you know, acknowledged and patients and family are forced to constantly navigate the healthcare system in search of you know, disease management and, and ultimately become very educated and 
they are also well, you know, positioned to to identify when a treatment outcome becomes meaningful to them. And in that context, Radzi's advocacy efforts have voiced very clearly and very loudly over the past few years that uh, patients with rare and serious conditions may value different treatment outcomes than usually expected, but may also be more willing to take greater risks than patients with common or less you know, serious conditions. And this is really what I wish to explore further and, and to quantify you know, through a robust methodology. Well, how might rare disease patients differ from the general patient population? Well, they do differ because of the, you know, the, you know, the, the severity of the condition and, you know, the paucity of treatment benefits. And so the facto or the, the hypothesis and was, uh, was that they, they, they are willing to take greater risks because of their conditions. They are also, you know, most, many of them are very, you know, degenerative and progressive. So, um, the risk um, attitudes may be uh, much different than the you know, general patient population. And what did you find rare disease patients care about most when weighing the risk and benefits of a, a potential therapy? So are, we need to distinguish here between two kinds of study findings. Now, between first the relative importance of treatment features and also, on the other hand, the, you know, the, the risk-benefit attitude. And when, when considering the opportunity of a, of a new medicine targeting a rare condition, uh, patients and caregivers uh, stressed that they attributed most importance to drug response. You know, how, how likely am I to, 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 to benefit from this drug? Will this drug work with me? And the, the, the other most valued dimensions of the new medicine that, was, um, that were reported by patients for cases were um, the risk of serious side effects as a number two, and uh, the ability to conduct usual activities while on treatment as a number three, and, and then um, the magnitude of health improvement uh, that the medicine then bring. Uh, in, in, in contrast, what mattered less to them related to treatment modalities, you know, namely uh, how long and where and how to take the medicine. And, and, and to come back to the your, your you know second part of your question, um, the in terms of, of trade-offs, study findings did support the hypothesis that uh, that patients and, and caregivers were willing to accept greater risks or side effects associated with a new medicine, uh, for instance, and they hoped for uh, a greater chance of drug response or a potential health improvement. But what I we just wanted to add, what I just wanted to add uh, was the the extra dimension of the of the study was also to 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 explore the the um the uh, correlation between you know, context of disease and, and these preferences and, and study findings um, did confirm quantitatively that attitudes about benefits versus risk may change uh, over time with disease progression or, you know, context of care. Did, did you find risk tolerance was a, a function of personality or did it correlate to the severity of symptoms? 
I don't believe there's any such thing as a you know as a single patient perspective. So um, there's a variety of patient perspectives, uh, even across patients with the same condition. So uh, clearly, uh, risk tolerance is very much correlated with personality. So each patient has its own experience of the disease and set of personal values, you know, which determine both preferences and risk tolerance uh, attitudes. And, and, and in fact, the design of our study um, did document the, the underlying heterogeneity uh, of, of preferences across individuals. But uh, yes, you know, uh, overall, uh, risk tolerance did correlate otherwise uh, with disease severity. And, um, you know, for those uh, interested to, to, to know more about, you know, just uh, invite them to, to read about the paper, but we, we investigated a number of correlations between patient preferences and and you know, the the outcomes of the self-reported assessment that patients and, and caregivers were invited to to, to complete. These um, self-reported assessments, you know, relate to disease severity in particular. What what were some of the other factors that affected a patient's willingness to to take risk? Well, it was just a number of, you know, uh, of, of factors. So, um, threat to life, you know, of course, um, disability, uh, impairment, but also uh, care management were, were all factors um, that were shown to, you know, influence um, you know, uh, risk, you know, risk attitude and, uh, and attitude um, of, of being willing to, to take risks. At the end of the survey, you invited participants to comment. You reproduced some of these comments in an appendix, which was interesting to read because it, it really took this out of the abstractions of, of survey numbers to really put a face on some of this. And at times it was quite powerful. What were the range of comments you got? Well, there were quite a few comments, which was, you know, very, yeah, very encouraging, you know, more or less, uh, half, you know, a third of the survey participants, um, took the opportunity to comment, you know, we, we didn't mention this from, you know, uh, in our interview, there would be, um, um, close to 900 patients and, and caregivers, uh, participated in the study. And, and as I've analyzed the, 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 the uh, open, Text comments that um, that uh, patients and caregivers uh, put on the um, added to the uh, to the survey. There were a few key concepts that came out, and 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 they clearly gave color and context to the you know, the hard quantitative or statistical data of the of the early exercise, and they related to hope, to risk, and, and to joint uh, decision making. So just to make it short. Uh, it was, you know, it was, you know, there were quite strong uh, comments related to, to to hope, and you know, in the context of genetics with diseases where a cure may, you know, reportedly be impossible, you know, at least within, you know, the large span of these patients, you know, very few patients actually stated being hopeful of a cure or or for a, you know a full recovery, but they did state that they were hoping for you know, great investment in research. That they were hoping for medicines that they would respond to, uh, or you know, medicines that would actually address 
their main symptoms. So I thought it was very much related to, you know, they, they were very pragmatic, I thought. And, and what I, you know, the, the other two very compelling messages related to risk. So indeed, they, they did, uh, raise an attitude, you know, very, very mature and, and, you know, informed attitudes to risks and which they were, you know, modulating according to their personal circumstances of disease seriousness, disease stage and current disease management. And, and, and ultimately many have suggested an eagerness to be more actively involved in their home care and, and to become real, you know, joint decision makers and, and, and treatment choices. You know, in, in the context, in the context of clinical trials, we've we've seen situations where regulators and patients may have different views about what are meaningful endpoints. Where there might be a, a functional benefit that that a patient gives great emphasis to, a regulator might might not see as a significant improvement. Is, is there a gap in the way? Patients and regulars think about benefits. Well, there there is a gap. Well, there is clearly, uh, you know, uh, yeah. um, well, it's it's a new school of thought now that is really taking over. You know, it's uh, it's really about being more patient centric, and this is so important. And and you know, I think it's 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 important here to mention, you know, the pioneer work. From you know, and Duchenne was called the dystrophy alleged by Pat Furlong in the U.S. Really, to outlining um, that there are benefits that that are most important patients, but are you know deemed not that of important by you know drug assessors. And I, I had the opportunity, the very you know, the privilege to be part of the uh, patient-centered outcomes measures uh, working group of the International Red Disease Consortium lately. And on that very point, we made it very clear that developing patient-centered outcomes measures for rare disease is a, is a necessity. You know, the bottom line is that if a treatment effect is not meaningful to the patient, meaning it doesn't target you know, what matters to the patient, then it is not a benefit to the patient. So I think there's a, there's a, you know, a huge momentum currently around that theme, and you know, this is really, you know, for the best, in my view. Well, there's certainly a lot of discussion, particularly among regulators, about bringing the patient's voice into the regulatory process today. How do you expect these views to evolve? Well, there has been... A, a great deal of, of progress made over the past few years, um, and I, I would be very optimistic. Uh, and actually, you know, your question is very timely uh, because uh, today, um, the, both the uh, the FDA and the European Medicine Agency made public that they were setting up a new cluster of collaboration on patient engagement within the you know, regulatory, um, the regulatory system. So, as far as I understood, they, they aim to, to provide a forum to share practices and best practices on, on the way those agencies involved patients in, in the development and the evaluation or the post-authorization of medicine. So, I, I think 
yeah, we 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 still have a long road ahead, uh, and um, well, certainly a bit more possibly in the in the European setting um, than in the US. But you know, overall, uh, we're on the right road. Do you see regulators ultimately making meaningful changes to better consider patient perspectives in the review of new drugs? I think they will. Yeah, I think there's clearly an awareness of uh, of you know consulting with patients and and generating thorough patient evidence to inform um, benefit risk assessments more more thoroughly. And you know, I I'm aware that there's been a number of initiatives besides the one I just mentioned, both in the US but also in Europe, really to to have a more structured framework to incorporate patient perspective into the assessment of drugs benefits and risks. So um yeah, it's it's in the coming and you know, we need to shape this and um, and clearly the, the US is as as I showed the example in the field of about um five Thomas Morell, a research fellow at Leuven University in Belgium. Thomas, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.